Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? Another season down, man. We made it. We made it. Another season down. What's this in terms of number of seasons Pound the Rock has been? I think it's five? I think it's six if you include... We, we started at, like, the very tail end. Like, we hit we did the playoff run in... 2019 right no we did the full season Sorry, in 2018 2018 yeah yeah, yeah. so so part, six parts of six runs. seasons yeah. yeah six playoff runs on pound the rock and we are happy everyone listening today is still with us six playoff runs later well after the 2023 playoffs the denver nuggets are nba champions the people of denver after a 47 year wait in the nba plus all the years they were in the aba they are finally champions of the basketball world, or at least North America. You wrote a great piece about how this Nuggets team just seemed to have an answer for everything. On both ends of the court, I'll add. Throughout the mm-hmm. playoff run, throughout the regular season in a way, although there were you know moments of adversity, I guess, but that's standard. I mean, they went through a rough patch. I don't remember when it was. Some At some point in the middle of the season, but they had already built such a giant cushion atop the West that it was hard to really take that seriously. As like, a, I yeah. think we could probably say in hindsight that that malaise in March was mostly the product of them taking their foot off the gas yeah. after having basically sewn up the number one seed. I remember vividly sitting in the uh, Scotiabank Arena rafters in the media gondola while the Raptors kind of shit kicked them in Toronto as part of that Nuggets slide. And I remember tweeting at the time that the Nuggets were fine. Like they had built something like an eight or nine game lead atop the West. It was early March, I think. Like every team in the NBA had gone through at least one stretch like this throughout the season. We had spent all year talking about the parity and the balance and how like no team is flawless and you know, in a way, every team's a fraud. And it was like, yeah, Denver was going through a rough patch. They were also eight or nine games ahead of everyone else in the West. It was, for me anyway, hard to really get too concerned about them. Probably caused Jokic the MVP, though, if we're being real. Yep. Uh, not in my mind, but in reality, it did. Yeah. Uh, the, the two things I think you could have said were concerns on some level coming into the season and probably still going into the playoffs were their defense. They were 15th ranked in the regular season. No team outside the top 11 in defensive efficiency had won the title since the 2001 Lakers, who were 22nd or 21st in defensive efficiency, but obviously had a ceiling that was much higher than that. And then they flipped the switch in the playoffs and went 15 and one. So had the number one defense in the playoffs too. That exactly. Lakers team. Yeah. So the defense was somewhat of a concern, although it did get better as the season went on. And then as I wrote about, Before the playoffs started, one of the big questions was, do they have a true complimentary star for Jokic or a true like championship level shot creator outside of Jokic from like the guard wing position, whatever. What I wrote coming into the playoffs was that obviously if Jamal Murray was the player that he was in his first two playoff runs, then they do. And if he was the player he started to show that he was starting to become again, down the stretch of the season than they do. But it was, you know, now we would find out based on how Jamal Murray performed in the playoffs. And holy hell, did Jamal Murray look like a championship-level shot creator in the playoffs? 
because the ultimate postseason performer came through again. I think uh, Micah Adams and then John Hollinger also shared this going into game five when Murray ended up with 14 points and it ruined this stat. But anyway, going into game five of the finals, only seven players in history had played at least 50 playoff games while averaging 25 plus points, five plus rebounds and five plus assists. Those seven players were Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Jerry West, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, and Jamal Murray. Like, the fact that Murray elevated himself to that level and and elevates himself to that level in the playoffs despite being a zero-time All-Star is just incredible. I I don't need to go on this rant again because you've heard me go on it the last couple pods I've been on with respect to them being the best playoff duo and just the ultimate postseason performers and all that. I want to talk about some of the stuff you wrote about and how there was just no answer for this team and how they had an answer for everything. And and my last note on the defense, by the way, they ended up 15th ranked, but it did end up by the end of the regular season that their defense was 0.6 points per 100 possessions better than league average. So the stat I cited a while ago, if you remember that only two teams in history have won the title with a below average defense that still stands it's the 2001 lakers and like the 1950 something st louis hawks or something and also only 0.4 points per 100 possessions out of the top 10 like a bunch of the teams in that band were really closely packed together so it's not like we're kind of splitting hairs especially if you think about the fact that a they got off to this miserable start where they were also i think getting burned by some bad opponent shooting luck but they came out of the gate and after like 25 games were 26th or 27th. And then that malaise in March that pulled them back down as well. I think, you know, the true talent level of this defense was definitely top 10 caliber. And if you want to use this as some kind of an indication that, well, maybe defense isn't as important as it used to be, or defense no longer wins championships. We're in this crazy offensive environment and the Nuggets, you know, the best offensive team in the league just won the title on the strength of their offense, I don't think that would be quite right because I think a, they were better than their underlying regular season numbers and they showed it in the playoffs, right? Like they finished the postseason as the fourth ranked playoff defense, 110.2 defensive rating, which would have ranked second during the regular season. Like they proved to be a good defensive team. Do you remember when they had that like two month stretch during the regular season when they were like a top two defensive unit? Of course, I wrote about it, and we had we did like a whole segment on like took up almost an entire episode talking about it. Like it was a big focus of mine, and I was really curious to see how real it was. And there were indicators kind of in either direction, and I think they proved over the course of this playoff run. Not that you know, I'll say outside of Phoenix, they didn't play any real offensive juggernauts, but I still think they proved over the course of the postseason that their defense was closer to what we saw during those really solid stretches of the regular season than it was to uh, the, the poor stretches that they had where they had lapses in focus and communication and all this other stuff that they cleaned up uh, apart from that one game two in the finals, basically. Like they were on point defensively throughout this entire run. And that's a huge part of the reason they won. So let's not discount defense and like use this as some kind of an indicator that we're moving in a different directions. Defense still wins championships. 
the Nuggets did win with their offense, but they also won with their defense. And that's part of what was so impressive about this run to me. And you mentioned, you know, the piece that I wrote and about how they answered every question. Yeah, 100%. That was on both sides of the ball, right? They played four very different opponents who who run their off, their offenses in completely different ways with different strengths and, and different ways that they try to attack you. You know, teams like like Phoenix that run a ton of pick and roll and rely on jump shots and, and teams like the Heat that are more sort of dribble handoff oriented and split action oriented and focused on like off ball action. Like you have to have a completely different defensive game plan against those two teams. And the Nuggets were, again, apart from that game too, razor sharp, had a great game plan, executed that game plan to near perfection. And it was really like the, the only hiccups that game two in the finals and like those two games against Phoenix was really, I'm not saying there weren't defensive mistakes that happened, but that was just two insane shot making performances from the Suns. And I think that like being spooked by that level of shot making did kind of unravel the Nuggets defense to a point where they started making mistakes because of what they were up against and how that can kind of obviously get you chasing your own tail a little bit on defense. But I really, apart from that, I think they were damn near perfect defensively. And and that was the biggest question that they answered. You know, I had no doubts whatsoever about whether their offense was going to hold up in the playoffs. None. Um, but it was the defense. And then it was like the Jokic list minutes, which was another huge storyline, I think. They, they found their backup center and it turned out to be Aaron Gordon, basically, or like the combination of Aaron Gordon and Jeff Green. Christian Brown getting some run with those transitional lineups. Bruce Brown, a big part of that. And they didn't kill teams in those minutes, but I think 176 minutes for the postseason in which they were a grand total of minus three, considering how dominant they were and have been over the last several years with Jokic on the floor was just massive. That's an incredible victory. Like, Technically, they lost those minutes, but in the playoffs, given how many minutes your best players play, and, and as you noted, given how dominant the Nuggets are in those Jokic minutes, if you are essentially playing the Jokic less minutes to a draw in the playoffs, you are well on your way. Yeah, and I think I should have checked this, but I, I'm pretty sure they won those minutes in the finals in every kind of way, like any question or doubt that you might have had about them was definitively answered. And I thought it was so fitting that the game in which they clinched the championship was one in which they had a 98 offensive rating, which as John Schumann pointed out, was the lowest offensive rating for any team to win a game throughout this entire postseason. Like this Nuggets team that has been so defined and carried by their offense for so long, Winning a championship in that game, they shot five for 28 from three. They were turning the ball over left and right, and they were still able to pull it out for a few reasons. One, in this like absolute grind fest of a game where no one could sto- no one could score, the refs were just letting everything go. It was incredibly physical. Yeah, Jokic's ability to just find his way to good shots and still be like the one player in that game generating efficient offense time after time. I think he finished 12 of 16 from the field, right? He was able to drag them across the finish line. They also, you know, in spite of that terrible three-point shooting performance, shot close to 60% from two-point range. 
and grabbed a bunch of offensive rebounds, scored 60 points in the paint. Like this was another thing to me in that like the, we, we've talked about how the league is going in this direction where these outcomes are increasingly dictated by jump shooting variants, right? And how in a lot of these matchups where the margins are somewhat slim, like that's the thing that can kind of tilt it in one direction or another. And we've said throughout, it's like, don't, you know, you don't discredit the team that won and say like it was just luck or whatever. They hit the shots and that's hugely important. So I, I just wanted to point out though that I think I never got that sense with Denver. Like none of their wins felt to me like a product of jump shooting variants and they weren't overly reliant on it, right? They were 14th out of 16 playoff teams and three point attempt rate. They just had different ways to manufacture good offense. A ton of that was just Jokic and Murray doing their work from like mid range, from floater range, getting to the rim. Like we've talked about off of, you know, not even necessarily like drives and dribble penetration, but just like those cuts and post-ups and things like that where Jokic is just able to pass over the top and hit guys going to the rim. They weren't beholden to jump shooting variants at the end of the day. Like I never got the sense that they were in any kind of trouble or had to rely on outlier shooting to win. They just soundly outplayed every team they saw and they wind up capping a, a 16 and 4 playoff run cash. That's the best playoff record for any team since the 2016-17 Warriors. And I think it's one of four teams, I want to say, in like the last 25 years to have a record that good in the playoffs. Their 118.2 offensive rating in the playoffs was tied with those same Warriors for, I want to say the best all time. I can't confirm that because I use the NBA.com metric for offensive rating, and that database only goes back 26 years. But it's tied with those same Warriors for the best offensive rating in the playoffs over would, that 26-year span. And because of the way that offense has trended. Yeah. I was going to say, I would be stunned if a pre-1997 team operated more efficiently than an offense like the, the current Nuggets or the most recent Warriors. And that's not even me saying because they're not as good. It's just we know how offense has trended when it comes to efficiency. I, right. I would bet a lot of money on the fact that whatever stands from the last 26 years stands all time when it comes to offensive efficiency records. So 16 and four, one of the most dominant playoff runs we've seen in, you know, the last 25 years at least. And I, I, you know, I know we hate building straw men on this podcast and I don't know if this is a straw man because I think, uh, you know, people who I respect, people who know basketball and are smart about this stuff, I don't think have really been saying this, but I do feel like there is this sentiment bouncing around where it's like they didn't have the most difficult path to the title. And I think that is a little bit of revisionist history, maybe a lot of revisionist history, considering probably the majority of people who like prognosticate about this stuff were picking the Suns to beat them in the second round. Yeah. Also, uh, I hope anyone, whether we're building straw men or not, anyone who is actually saying that on any kind of platform, it should be accompanied with circus music in the background because that's <laughs> absolute clown talk. They beat that Suns team that I think a lot of people expected to beat them, routed the Lakers, who I think, and, go ahead. You no, know, that Suns team that you're mentioning, because I know even the potential comeback, it would be like, well, they had all the injuries and like CP was out and whatever. And it was basically just Durant and, Devin Booker, listen, as I noted at the time, 
I don't care how many injuries a team has. When you absolutely throttle and run a team off the court when Devin Booker and Kevin Durant are in the lineup, you get credit from me. I don't care what the supporting cast looked like. They didn't just beat that team. Even though it went six games, they throttled them, especially in that last game. Like, they made no mistake that that team did not belong on the floor with them. And that was the team that was supposed to be perfectly designed to exploit all of Denver's defensive flaws. And I mentioned those two games they won where they had crazy offensive ratings, but... Again, I don't really think that Denver did anything particularly wrong in those games. Like there were a few instances and we even talked about them on the pod where I thought their defensive process could have been better. But that was a series in which they had Jokic playing up at the level constantly and their rotations behind that and Jokic's ability to get up and then get back in the play. Like all the things they did ultimately helped them, you know, pull that series out. And obviously that was one where their offense was completely off the charts and the the Suns had no answer for that whatsoever but like that was the that was the team that was the offense that was supposed to make things really difficult for Denver and I don't particularly think that it did you know like they yeah they were in a 2-2 series but guess what they completely dominated games 5 and 6 like made no mistake so i i just think yeah they made it look easy and so it's easy to say in retrospect wow that wasn't a very difficult path but a lot of people, like not just the Sun series, a lot of people thought that the Lakers were either going to win that series or push it, you know, the distance, make it a very tough series for Denver to win. I, you know, I thought it was going to be a short series coming in. Even me after game one was like, man, I think the Lakers can make this like a really difficult series and they could not. What's interesting about the Lakers series is that the Lakers out of the four Nuggets opponents were the only one to not take a game off them, but ended up with the best the closest margin of that's right like best point differential in the loss yeah and i honestly think i mean i guess you you have to hand it to the suns for being the team that that got closest to beating them even though it still at the end didn't feel like they were particularly close but yeah i think the lakers played well in that series you know and like they were still not close so um yeah i just think you know at any of that easy path stuff and and let's talk about the heat team for a second because yeah, the Nuggets beat an eight seed in the finals, and that I guess could make you think that it was not not the most difficult, you know, opponent or the the highest quality of competition. Those ninety nine Spurs really suck. Like, I just want to talk about this specific instance because I don't care about that Heat team seed or their regular season record or the fact that they got outscored during the regular season or lost their first playing game at home to Atlanta. You throw all that out the window, man. This was a playoff juggernaut. Like they beat not only the top two teams in the East, but the top two championship betting favorites en route to the finals. And this is now in a four-year span with Jimmy Butler, two finals appearances and an Eastern Conference finals appearance in which they came up one jumper short of the finals. Playoff juggernaut. And the Nuggets made them look completely out of their depth, like they didn't belong. And that doesn't mean they didn't. It just means that the Nuggets were way better. And like I said, had an answer for everything Miami threw at them. And like I wrote in that piece, I think that was the perfect opponent for them to play in order to reveal the extent to which they had an answer for everything because no other team could have thrown as much shit at Denver as Miami did, or been willing to try all this different stuff, like had the defensive adaptability to do, you know, 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like all these different things and, and keep coming up with tweaks and counters just to try and figure something out. And Denver just had an answer for all of it at the end of the day. Yeah. And okay, sure. They beat three play-in teams and a banged up Sun Squad. You can look at it like that, but it's the playoffs and they beat the teams that were thrown at them and they won four series and they went 16 and four. Like this argument that, you know, they had kind of a weak path. It's like, well, okay, but they went 16 and four. Even if you think they had a weak path, which I don't, it's like, well, then don't you give them credit for doing what you would expect a champion to do with a so-called weak path? Just absolutely dismantle them. They lost four times in 20 games over a two-month championship run. They were never tested other than maybe for a couple nights in May against a Suns team shooting out of their mind with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. This team was barely even challenged in the playoffs. So I don't care whether someone thinks it's a, uh, you know, a weak path or like not the toughest competition because the Nuggets made mince meat out of that competition anyway. Even though the Bucks and uh, sorry, the Bucks and Celtics ended up with the best records for the most part. By and large, the team that to me looked like the best, most complete, most perfect fitting team with the best player on the planet all year ended up winning the championship. And maybe some other matchups could have slightly deterred, like rerouted them or caused them to play a few more games on that championship run. But I think they were the best team overall in the league this year with the best player. Everything fits you. Like they were winning the title. If they were healthy, they were on a mission Mm -hmm. and they did exactly what you'd expect them to do with what people think was a slightly weaker (laughs) strength of schedule in the playoffs. Yeah. And I also want to say like, cause there are people on the other side of it who I feel like are, clowning anyone who had any doubts about this Nuggets team or thought that maybe the playoffs could reveal some vulnerabilities or like a fatal flaw. I also think that those concerns and doubts were valid, right? Like, you know, saying Jokic couldn't be the best player on a championship team obviously wasn't, but I think wondering whether their defense could hold up against, you know, elite playoff offenses and and deadly spread pick and roll and teams that lived at the rim. Like, I think those are all totally fair at least questions to have. And I say that as somebody who picked them to win the West before the season and said midseason that I would pick them to beat the team that I predicted would come out of the East. Like, I don't think it's a surprise that they got here, but I do think it's surprising just how easy they made it look, how dominant they were, and how they were able to definitively answer every single question asked of them. Like, Jokic's defense for large portions of the regular season was straight up bad. And again, I say that as someone who has, you know, at least been even handed, I think, about what his defense is and isn't over the years. But it was he was not good defensively for most of the regular season. And this during this playoff run was the best defense I've ever seen him play, especially in the finals. And some of that comes down to matchups. Like I think the Lakers and Heat especially were good matchups for him and the Suns somewhat less so, and I think we saw that. But he he did his job at every turn, whether that meant, you know, playing up at the level, whether whether it meant playing and drop, you know, whether it meant, like, coming over and making those backline rotations and helping at the rim. Like, his rim protection in the finals was outstanding. <laughs> 52.5% shooting allowed 
at the rim. And by the end of it, and I know part of this has to do with Jimmy Butler and whatever physical condition he was in and not entirely Jokic, but like, dude, Jimmy Butler, like straight up did not want to attack and challenge Nikola Jokic at the rim. And that last play, like that, that fateful championship clinching turnover, basically that Jimmy Butler committed happened after he got a switch on Jamal Murray, drove him to the basket and Jokic stepped up from the baseline to help. And what does Jimmy Butler do? Instead of trying to power through him, picks up his dribble, pivots, and like tries to force a kick out that isn't there. And KCP is able to come up with the steal. So I, I just, it was just like really, really impressive work. And I don't think that means that the questions coming into it weren't valid. It just means they rose to the challenge and answered those questions. And we should applaud them for that. Absolutely. Nikola Jokic, by the way, in this championship run, ended up averaging 30 points, 13.5 rebounds, 9.5 assists, a steal, and a block on 54-46-80 shooting, 57-46-80 if you want to go by two-point percentage as the first number. And he did it while playing, as you mentioned, probably the best defense of his career as part of a 16-4 and run to the title. Just the cherry on top of what has been an absolutely batshit insane first, what, eight years in the NBA, five playoff runs. Um, and also Jamal Murray, by the way, who, you know, in his own right, I think he averaged like 26 and seven in this playoff run. Also joins Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan and LeBron James as the only four players in finals history to average 20 plus points and 10 plus assists in a final series. That's, that's pretty good company to keep. I, would Man, say. These, I, like, I know I keep bringing it up, but like these guys are ridiculous in the playoffs. Ridiculous. Yeah. They're seven and two in playoff series together. And they're and both just, under contract for at least two more years, by the way, as are Michael Porter and Aaron Gordon. And the only guy going into next year out of their rotation players who is going to be a free agent is Bruce Brown. Cause he's got like a $6 million player option. Like, which is a big deal. He was it huge for, for sure. them, but for sure. Yeah. I'm not saying it, but I'm just saying like to to win a title in the manner they just did and to only have one rotation player, you know, potentially hitting the market this summer. Got to be feeling real good in Denver. Yeah, and I mean just like <laughs> until a team comes up with a viable answer to that Jokic Murray two-man game, they're going to be incredibly difficult to stop in a postseason setting. And as long as their defense can continue to hold up like this, I mean, I, I don't know what you do with them. Like we saw every possible coverage that anyone could throw at that two-man game, whether it was pick and roll or dribble handoff, right? We saw switches that Jokic just obliterated on the backside. Like that is not tenable. We saw drop that Jamal Murray was just able to torch with drives to the rim or pull-up jumpers. Or, you know, Nikola Jokic basically pick and popping or short rolling. That was not tenable. We saw the Heat break out these blitzes that were like temporarily effective. But the Nuggets ultimately were able to solve it in large part because their supporting cast really stepped up. You know, anytime like the blitz was coming and they're running a third guy at Jokic. And it's like, okay, it's like a swing to the weak side where the Nuggets are going to have a two on one. And uh, they did an amazing job, especially cutting right from the weak side when that would happen. Like that was something that this team, I think, did so incredibly well. But there, there's just no good answer for it. And that was a through line of the entire postseason. And the Heat, more than any team, 
were like willing to try whatever. We saw them throw that zone out there time and time again, even knowing sort of intuitively like, yeah, you can't zone Nikola Jokic. He's going to figure out how to bust it. And it actually worked for stretches, but eventually he did solve it. Like even in that game five, when the Heat zoned a ton and the Nuggets couldn't score, I thought they were getting amazing shots against that zone. They just couldn't knock them down. So I don't think you look at that and say, oh, this is the way to do it. Uh, there, There is no good answer. And that's why I'm like, yeah, this is a team that solved anything and could not be solved. That was what it boiled down to at the end of the day. And and Jokic and Murray were very much at the center of that, but so were the guys around them who I also think really rose to the occasion. Like the Nuggets supporting cast was excellent throughout the playoffs. Um, and, and even, you know, like just quickly to the defense point, I think in large part, like the, the struggles that teams had scoring on Denver had to do with the trade-offs that come with throwing everything at the wall to try and slow them down, right? Like whether that's just having to play your best defensive personnel more often than maybe you'd normally feel comfortable doing because, you know, oftentimes that's not going to be your best offensive personnel. And so you allow Denver to shrink the court at the other end, right? Because you're having to play these defensive specialists in order to try and slow them down. That's part of it. And then just the effort required to do it and how much that can take out of you at the defensive end of the floor. Like, I think for those reasons, Denver's offense really helped their defense on top of the fact that they were just able to set their defense so often because their opponents kept having to pull the ball out of the basket. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think it's a good reminder of how, like, especially in the in a playoff series and a playoff run, like these things add up, right? Like you make a team have to work harder on one end of the court, you do that every game in really like competitive playoff series where every possession counts and they're balls to the wall, every possession. And you have, you make them have to dig deeper on one end of the court, every single possession. Like there's going to be a residual effect at some point, right? Like there just has to be. And yeah, I think that's a good point about how the way teams have had to fight on the defensive end to try to come up with any way to even slow the Nuggets probably does impact their performance on the offensive end, whether due to the personnel decisions they have to make or just the effort and like required the amount of space needed to cover, like all of it. Like look at Bam, right? I think you can just like zero in on Bam and say, man, he missed a lot of bunnies, right? Like you couldn't do any, you couldn't do anything one-on-one with Jokic at the offensive end. Yeah, probably like, his legs were dead from all the work that he was putting in on defense throughout the series. Yeah. I do think that's a little column A, little column B where I agree with you. I think part of it was definitely how fatigued he was. Part of it also like his individual offensive limitations coming back to bite him a little bit too, which we can, he doesn't have the best touch in the world for sure, but he missed some chippies that he would normally make. Yeah. That you would expect like an NBA big man, pretty much of any quality to make. You talk about the role players and, and, um, and even like how the bench performed and basically played to a draw when Jokic was off and all that. Like this team was just so well built. And I think what's really cool about them is that, yeah, obviously there was a couple moves coming into this year, whether it was like KCP and Bruce Brown or whatever. But for the most part, they were so well built and it was like over time, you know, like, okay, obviously you draft Jokic and Murray um, and MPJ who falls to you because of the back issues. But then like, 
a trade for Gordon in 2021 in a move that both of us at the time thought, and I know you can do this for any season, well, if everyone had stayed healthy, but still, at the time, we both thought in 2021, after they traded for Aaron Gordon, and especially seeing the way it looked those first few weeks before the Jamal Murray injury, that that team could have won the title and maybe would have been our pick to win the title going into the playoffs had Jamal Murray knockout hurt. Then they go through a couple years without Jamal Murray and they're still, you know, like tinkering around and, and trying to find guys that fit around Jokic. And eventually you end up with Brown and KCP and you draft Christian Brown, who is really good. And I think has some nice upside as he continues to like earn minutes in Denver and play off Jokic and all that. And uh, what he does on the defensive end, getting them out in transition. I, I really like what Christian Brown brings. Also, Christian Brown, great stat and also one of those like just cool to be part of history thing. But Christian Brown is only the fifth player in basketball history and the first player in 36 years to win an NBA title immediately after winning an NCAA title. So that's cool. Uh, but anyway, yeah, just all like all the players that have come in and, and the way they've built this slowly but surely over time. And as I've mentioned a few times before, too, the fact that they stuck with Mike Malone, right? Like there are a lot of teams that I don't think would have and might have maybe even early in the process would have fired him or thought, okay, like he got us to a certain point. Now we need another coach to get us over the hump or like whatever the case may be. And they just stuck with him. Let him grow with a young team. Let him improve as a coach, just like the team has to improve as a coach. And just to see the fruits bear out in this way for all of these guys and for the team and for the organization. And again, for a city that waited 47 years in the NBA alone, let alone their ABA years, like it, it really is a nice story on all accounts. Yeah, and I think, you know, okay, so there, there is, I guess, in a certain sense, a kind of roadmap there where it's like, just, you know, draft really good young players, let them grow together, and then, you know, make smart moves on the margins to to complement <laughs> that that core and, and build some continuity. But, like, there's no... I, I, I would push back against anyone like reaching for uh, a blueprint that could be followed yeah. here or any sweeping takeaways about have what wins in the playoffs or how to build the right way. I'm doing like air quotes right now, right? Because I just, yeah, okay. Like the blueprint, I guess, is draft one of the greatest players of all time, 41st 40 overall, you know, and, and maybe the single greatest offensive player we've ever seen. So just do that and then build the team out from there and, and you'll be fine. But I'm not like, look, every every team that wins a championship has to get lucky, both in like the team building element and like even the run to get there. Like that's always going to be a component of this. But that's, I mean, they won the title because they have Nikola Jokic and they have Nikola Jokic because he fell to 41st in the draft because other teams, including Denver, who passed on him twice in that same draft, you know, obviously had concerns about the translatability of uh, his physical skill set. Did you read Zach Lowe's piece uh, after the Nuggets won the title? I have it open. I haven't gotten to it yet. So there's a really great anecdote in there about um, conversations Zach had with members of the Nuggets front office back in, I, I, I can't remember the exact, I think it was like 2018. It was like before the Nuggets really took off, before any of their playoff success. And uh, Lowe writes that at the time, Calvin Booth, who was not their actual GM yet, I think he was still the assistant GM to Tim Connolly, posed the question to Zach and maybe some other reporters that were there about like, again, you gotta remember, this is 2018, like, about 
who they would take going forward between uh, Nikola Jokic, Carl Anthony Towns, and Chris Thaps Porzingis. And I think if you ask most, even basketball people, let alone like basketball media people, at that time in 2018, I think most probably put Jokic third, at best second, out of those three. And Zach writes that, like Calvin Booth kind of lets them like think about it, say their piece or whatever, and then says like that everyone's wrong and that it's going to be Jokic and it's not going to be close. And again, obviously you can look at it as like, well, you know, he had to say that because that was their guy and that's what he hoped. But there was clearly a belief there in him and a vision in probably just seeing what he was doing behind the scenes and in practices and all that, that like, holy hell, we have something special here before the world really took notice. And uh, good for them because, yeah, they got something special. Yeah, and I mean, huge credit to not only Calvin Booth, but obviously Tim Connolly before him, right? Like, the the foundation of this team was built by Tim Connolly's front office, which, as you mentioned, Calvin Booth was a part of. But, like, Connolly was, you know, the, the lead basketball decision maker when they drafted Jokic, when they drafted Murray, when they drafted Porter Jr., when they traded for Gordon. And then I feel like, you know, Booth comes in and sort of puts the finishing touches on it with what just looks in hindsight like a brilliant set of offseason moves. Like the KCP move, honestly, I was ambivalent about it. Like I will cop to, I wasn't like so down on it, but I certainly wasn't over the moon. I thought he was going to be a good fit. But in terms of, you know, moving on from Monty Morris with Jamal Murray coming back from an 18 month layoff, I was like, man, like you're kind of losing a lot of ball handling there. And that feels a little bit risky to me. It's certainly a big bet on Murray returning to form. But that proved to be an absolute stroke of genius and like not an obvious move, right? I don't think that's one that like people were clamoring for or saw coming or anything. It was just a perfectly timed move for a perfectly fitting player who in terms of like his movement shooting, his point of attack defense, you know, his cutting, his his transition defense, like all of that stuff, I mean, was just perfect. Uh, and having him there at the point of attack as a chaser, a guy who's really good at staying attached, fighting over screens, I think allowed some of the defensive versatility that we saw from Denver this year where they could mix in a lot more drop and be successful doing it. And then, you know, the Bruce Brown addition, which we both absolutely adored for the taxpayer mid-level. But I came away feeling like, you know, I, I look back at the reasons that I thought it was going to be such a hit in Denver, where I'm like, man, inverted pick and rolls. Like, he's going to be a role man for Jokic. He's going to be a perfect cutter off of Jokic because that's what he'd done in Brooklyn, right? Like, he was an undersized role man and he was a cutter. And that was, you know, him playing off ball was what had made him successful there. And those skills were still important in Denver, especially the cutting. But the big revelation, they, they trade Bone, Bones Highland uh, at the deadline. And like they got Reggie Jackson back, but Reggie Jackson was very quickly out of the rotation and very quickly Bruce Brown was their backup point guard. And the big revelation in this postseason was Bruce Brown cooking with the ball in his hands, just like a legit off the dribble threat, getting to the rim seemingly at will. I've thrown out this stat now a couple of times, but I think it's really important to, to point out it gets really hard to get to the rim in the playoffs. Uh, average rim frequency during the regular season this year was 33.3%. In the playoffs, it went down to 28.6%. It gets harder. Team scheme, they pack the paint. You know, they dare so-so shooters to shoot the ball. 
And Bruce Brown, despite a huge uptick in his self-created two-point shots, actually increased his rim frequency to 41% in the postseason. Like, that is just mind-bogglingly impressive to me. You know, on top of the fact that he hit a ton of timely jumpers, played really good perimeter defense in his own right, and, oh yeah, comes up with the championship-winning basket off a putback in Game 5. For the taxpayer MLE. Like, come on. Well, he'll get some money this summer, as he deserves. Yeah, and and not in Denver. Like, they don't have bird rights on him, and he's he's not going to be back. And that's definitely going to be a big loss. I I don't think it's going to be, like, debilitating or prevent them from getting back to the stage. But uh, they're going to miss him. He was incredible. Yep. All right, I don't think there's too much more to say about the Nuggets, although we could go on all day about the champions. And we want to take the break, come back, and talk about the Heat, which I know you're just dying to do. Um, (laughs) But before we get to break, I did want to mention, and I think it's something we both were probably thinking about noting uh, at some point in this conversation, but over like the last couple years, I've mentioned it a few times about like the way the league was trending, uh, the parody that was creeping into the league, this season especially, I wrote about it a couple times. I talked about it a bunch about like how balanced the league was and how this was coming into the season when you looked at the betting odds and projections. And then once the season was played, and I think even if you watch, like in general, this was probably the most balanced season of our lifetime. Not probably, it was. And we were entering an unprecedented era of NBA parity. And I would always reference the only thing that compares is like the late 70s, even though neither one yeah. of us was there. You can just go by who won the titles and also like some of the records of teams that won the titles and all that. But anyway, we finally did it. Wolf on or the NBA finally did it for the first time since those mythical legendary late seventies that you and I always reference when it comes to parody, the NBA finally has a five year period where five different teams have won the title, the nuggets in 23, the Warriors in 22, the Bucks in 21, the Lakers in 20, the Raptors in 19. The last time this happened was 77 to 81. Blazers, Bullets, Sonics, Lakers, Celtics. There was a period from 75 to 80 when six different franchises actually won in six years. Hmm. And that was Warriors, Celtics, Blazers, Bullets, Sonics, Lakers. So if a team that has not won it in the last five years wins it next year, then we will have truly achieved peak NBA parity, or at least tied for peak NBA parity. But I do think that this is the beginning of something when it comes to balance and parity, as opposed to the late 70s when that run then gave way to just Lakers and Celtics for most of the 80s, other than those two Pistons wins and like one Sixers win. Um, I don't think that'll be the case this time just because of the way the league is trending and also with the new CBA that's coming in with that second tax apron, with the way teams will be discouraged from really outspending others and some of the roster construction restrictions that will be placed on them if they spend to a certain amount. Everything is kind of coming up parody, if you will, in terms of the way the next decade will go, let alone the last five years. Obviously, you can't project too far in this business, but I do think Unlike the late 70s, this is only going to give way to more balance and parity as opposed to what happened then. Yeah, I, I could totally see it going in that direction. But also, I think it would be foolish to, I don't know, to, we just never know how these things are going to go, right? Like, a, a earth-shattering trade could change the landscape this summer. 
the Nuggets could just emerge as this like unbeatable juggernaut that dominates the next half decade. Which they very well could. They could. It's like they're well set up to do so. I'm I, you know, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. And there are a lot of different things that could unwind that, you know, including on the health front, but like they They have a young a young core that has they have a young core that has already, you know, grown and been built up together, locked in for the next several years, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. So, um, yeah, I mean, like uh, that that could totally happen, but also it might not. Like the the Suns could make some tweaks this summer that turn them into a juggernaut, right? Like the the Grizzlies could figure some things out. Like another team could emerge mm-hmm. that we don't even see coming yet. Like there are always these unforeseen elements and like just you know we're we're victim to recency bias a lot so i don't want to just say like yeah oh man i mean they're gonna be tough to beat but like i you know i'm not gonna put the dynasty label on them preemptively i do think if we're looking around the league landscape like if there is any team that is well set up to like contend for the next half decade it is denver right like it's yeah it's them or it's boston i guess but i feel better Obviously, it's easy to say that now. I feel better about Denver's ability to do that, um, given some of the uncertainty looming over Boston right now. But I think Boston is definitely part of that mix, too. Um, So, yeah, it'll it'll be really interesting to see if this uh, if this parody continues and if we continue to see new contenders and champions emerging every year. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there, except for uh, maybe the Grizzlies will figure some things out because... uh... We can talk about that another day, but uh, <laughs> another day, but, yes. Yeah. Also, man, when, when that suspension finally gets announced, I guess we yeah. can uh, we can Which talk I, about it. I do think will be any day. Um, also, the promise of the Northwest Division, like Nuggets, already champs and look like they should contend for the next, like as you said, like half decade. And then you've got Utah, who just had this really exciting kind of almost too soon year with marketing emerging as a legit star with Kessler looking as like a center of the future. They're still going to have a good pick and they've got as much draft capital as pretty much anyone in the league. You've got the thunder who we've talked about. They could be ready, not necessarily to contend, but like they could be ready to be legit good ASAP when October rolls around and could be good for a very, very long time. A lot of fun stuff happening in that Northwest division. Anyway, I think that's enough of all that. Why don't we take the break, come back and talk about your Miami heat. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfond, we've spent 45 minutes on the victors and to the victors go the spoils. But there is another side to this finals, and that is the defeated side, the Heat. They lost, so Heat culture no longer exists. I'm not kidding. <laughs> heat culture helped heat them culture, get- Heat culture has been vanquished, my friend. Yeah. It helped never to be seen or heard from again. No, but I do think that's a that's actually a good uh, jumping off point because a piece I have going up actually should be up right around the time uh, we're recording this. Very short piece, just on uh, kind of somewhat where the heat go from here, but also more so about like why you shouldn't 
overlooked them as a like player this summer. And I do think it's really interesting because as I write in this piece, if you check it out on the score app, I like on paper or in theory, you could look at like them falling short in the finals, kind of look at the way the contracts are constructed, the ages of certain guys and say, they're kind of dead in the water now. Like old team led by a guy, a superstar who will be 34 when next season tips off and almost 35 by the time next playoffs roll around. Yes, they had this really inspiring, unpredictable run in the postseason, but it followed an injury-plagued 44-win regular season in which they ended up in the play-in tournament and almost didn't make the playoffs at all. They have more money committed to next year than any team besides the Warriors or Clippers. They are flirting with that second tax apron, which will massively restrict what they can do in the future and impose like limitations on their roster constructing ability. And you add it all up and you think there are like... There is a very logical argument to be made where it's like they had a good run in these four years, like the first four years with Jimmy, but this is as close as they're going to get, losing in the finals twice, and it's all downhill from here, and here's why. And I would say that is a well-reasoned argument that makes all the sense in the world. I'd also say, though, this team, for a capped-out aging team that seemingly like doesn't have a lot of options, they have a lot more options, I think, or at least a lot more star trade ability this summer than most would give them credit for. And the reason I say that is suddenly the Heat have more picks to play with than they have had in years. So they owe a 2025 lottery protected pick to Oklahoma City that becomes unprotected in 2026. So because of the way the rolling protections work and the Stepien rule, in 24 and 27, they can only offer swap rights. Um, But they can offer... The 2023 18th pick that they have, they can offer their 2028 pick. They can offer swipe rights again at 24, 27, yeah. 29. Or, or also, the Thunder could extract like a second round pick in exchange for removing those protections, right. which I would not put past them. No, I would not either. But then also like if the Heat wait to use picks in a deal until after the 2023 draft is over, then they also have access to their 2030 pick and trade. So I'm not saying it would be the, the most prudent decision. But if they wanted to, and we know the like how the Heat operate, if they wanted to like throw everything out there, put a maximum package together with picks, they can put a package together this summer with like two first rounders outright and three swaps. They can do that. They've got Heroes contract, like a 23-year-old good shooter creator who you could look at it and be like, well, 120 million over four years for Tyler for a non-all-star. That's a lot. In the modern cap climate, that's actually closer to a bargain for a 23-year-old who can do what Hero does. He's coming off a trip to the finals, man. I'm sure teams are going <laughs> to be climbing all over themselves to get a piece of that. No, I, I think that contract is more movable than like people would think. Like I, I think there would be takers. I agree. Now, Lowry, who's you know not worth in terms of on-court impact the 29.7 million dollar salary he's got next season it's now an expiring contract at least as opposed to like the immovable multi-year overpay it's been the last couple years right duncan robinson is owed 47 million guaranteed over the next three years i still think that is obviously going to be very 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 challenging to move but it's less challenging to move now than it was two months ago when he was completely out of the rotation so They've got some bad money in the books, but I would say they've got more movable bad money now than they did two months ago. They have the ability to put like the maximum draft pick package together and they have South Beach, which you can laugh at it all you want. But if you remember like four years ago, they were over the cap when 
Jimmy Butler, who was an unrestricted free agent, maneuvered his way there. And the Heat just turned it into a giant sign-in trade to land him because they did not have the cap space to sign him. I think when you consider the draft capital, even maybe Hero as like a young talent on like under long-term team control, some of the big money they have to match salaries, you put it all together, and the fact that it would not be the first time a player just kind of forces his way to Miami. I do think this team is very much in the mix to go big game hunting again this summer. Now, I, I think there are ways you can look at it and say that would actually be a terrible idea. It would handicap them for like the next however long. Like, even if you want to say they're going to get in the mix for a Beal, right? Whose contract is pretty scary. You can say like Beal maybe doesn't even put them over the hump and then they end up in absolute salary cap hell without any picks in the future. Like I I can see how that goes wrong. I'm not arguing that they should do this. I'm just saying I think they make a lot of sense as that team that throws caution to the wind, maybe gets a little desperate and makes one of those moves. And I would also argue like, even if you want to think about a guy like Dame, who you'd say, well, if he actually does hit the market, there are teams that can come up with better packages. Don't discount the potential or the possibility that a respected franchise icon like that, even if you're going to talk about a Beal who in Washington is a respected franchise icon, don't discount the possibility that their incumbent teams might want to work with them in some fashion where like maybe a Dame or a Beal says to their team, hey, like we're going to do a trade this summer. We're going to work something out. I would appreciate it if you try to work something out with Miami before you talk to other teams. And maybe there's a package that works there where Miami has to give up a lot of draft capital, whatever it is. But that that's my very long way of saying, even though on paper and financially, it looks like they should be dead in the water now. Don't underestimate this team's ability to pull it off one more time, bring in one more star in what will likely be the last summer, they really have the ability to do this before they enter salary cap hell next year and potentially start seeing the damages of the super tax. Well, I mean, they're butting up like they're they're in salary cap hell now. Like they're yeah. over the tax, even without re-signing their impending free agents, right? Like they got like Oladipo's probably picking up his player option, right? nine and a half million like he's picking that up right so that i mean like that puts them over the tax i'm pretty sure without even re-signing vincent or Struess. and i don't know maybe they're just fine letting those guys go and saying like yo we're the miami heat we'll find other undervalued guys or we'll develop them because that's what we do but i would think they want to have at least one of those guys back right like I, i think it would especially vincent with the run that he just had in like the state that lowry's in you know, Lowry had a, I think, a great playoff run, but again, he's yeah. 37. Like he was on his last legs, and I don't know. I think it would really hurt to lose Vincent, but maybe it's kind of like, uh, you know, you accept a little bit of pain in the short term for more long term gain, and you you focus on cleaning up the cap sheet a bit, and and find a way to pull another rabbit out of a hat and, and go star chasing yet again. Like I do think Hero is going to be the centerpiece of any such trade i just don't really know what his value is going to be like around the league like that's a a huge question that i have he is like very much this archetype that feels like it's at an inflection point in terms of you know like this is like a valuable regular season player without a doubt 
but we see time and again in the playoffs. And I wrote about this. It was like the first story that I wrote this postseason was about this exact type of player and how, you know, their value can really be diminished in the playoffs and how like their ability or inability to contribute in a series can be a huge swing factor. Like, whether it is Hero, whether it's Jordan Poole, whether it's Tyrese Maxey, who I think resides like very much at the upper echelon of this archetype and like proved this postseason, to me at least, that he can kind of supersede that label and like very much be a 16-game type of player. These undersized or defensively vulnerable combo guards who are not necessarily good enough offensively, like not efficient enough scorers, not good enough playmakers, who can't necessarily give you enough offensively to overcome their defensive limitations. I don't know. I just don't know what the value of that type of player is. Like we saw Miami did not miss a beat without Tyler Hero. Like they plugged in Duncan Robinson. And I honestly kind of think they were better off doing that, right? Like he he certainly didn't take anything off the table offensively. And like, despite the fact that Duncan Robinson is, you know, no lockdown defender in his own right, he has size. We've talked about how good he is defending in a zone. Like, I I don't know. I just don't think that having Hero healthy for that run would have moved the needle for them at all. Or if it would have, it might have moved it in the wrong direction. So, I don't know. I I I don't know whether he still factors into Miami's long term plans. I don't know whether they want to move him or what they could get for him if they tried to move him. And even if it was for a Beal, like, I think Beal is better than Tyler Hero, for sure. But, like, how much better is Bradley Beal than Tyler Hero right now? I agree with you. I don't think he's better by enough to, say, completely throw away their, like, second half of the decade in terms of, like, picks and all that for it. I don't think he's worth that upgrade. But I I feel like if there's a, a team or a franchise out there that would again, throw that caution in the wind and say, well, we'll figure out the second half of the decade when it gets here. We'll eventually have cap space at some point again in the long-term future, and then we'll get somebody else so we can just do this now. It would be Miami, right? Like, that's what they do. They just chase stars. But to your point about when you said, like, they're already in salary cap hell, I agree with you. My point is strictly that if they even re-sign one of Vincent or Struess and Oladipo picks up his player option, what I think, like, should happen, then that's it. They're they're at the second apron. They're over the second apron already. Yeah. Just based on those two things and what they've already got under contract. But the restrictions that come with that wouldn't take effect till the 2024 offseason. And so that's why I say it's not that they're not in salary cap hell already, but they can still do things right now, despite being in that hell, as opposed to a year from now, if things trend this way, they lose a lot of their flexibility next summer and going into that 24, 25 season. And that's why I look at it as like, this is really their last opportunity to really shake up or add to like the Jimmy Butler led squad, like in the Jimmy Butler era. And given that it's their last opportunity to really do that, given the track record of this franchise, the way they operate, I would be really surprised if they let that opportunity pass them by. Again, not saying that they shouldn't be more prudent because I don't necessarily think they should be throwing caution in the wind and just going and trying to find like another star, but I feel like they will. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Uh, I, I think they have some options, but not a ton of options. And I don't want to discount them, you know, in terms of their ability to, again, pull a rabbit out of a hat or their ability to just like run this back and still find some magic and like be a dangerous playoff team. 
I was saying all this same stuff after last season. And for a while, it looked like it was all bearing out, right? They had the super disappointing regular season and almost got bounced in the play-in round. But uh, I just, you know, I'm done underestimating this team in any form or fashion. So I think, uh, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see what direction they decide to go. But as long as they have Jimmy Butler there and, and operating near the peak of his powers and Eric Spolstra stalking the sidelines, I feel like they're uh, going to have a chance to do some special things. And I know we've gotten into like looking ahead here, but I do think we should take a moment and just sort of reflect on what this team accomplished this postseason. Because, I, I mean, I guess there's the 98 Knicks to draw on, but that was a weird yeah, 50 game Sorry, the 99 Knicks. So that was a weird like 50 game season. I, I don't know what to make of that, but like I have never seen a run like this from just a a team that was, you know, apart from that series against the Knicks, like they were an underdog at every turn. And ultimately they ran out of juice in the finals against a superior team, but they battled to the bitter end, even in the finals, like muddied up that game five, again, through everything and the kitchen sink at Denver and had more success than any other team did in terms of just like limiting their offense. You know, ultimately I think held them to like a 113.5 offensive rating in the finals, which was well below uh, Denver's regular season and playoff standard. And I mentioned like, yeah, the Nuggets had an answer for everything. Nothing that you could do against them ever worked for more than like a few possessions at a time. But Miami did so many different things that they actually like, you know, you stack those possessions on top of one another and suddenly it's like, hey, a few possessions here and a few possessions there. And they're actually able to kind of get Denver out of their flow a bit and muddy things up, like kept them out of transition, right? Forced them to play over 80% of their possessions in the half court in the finals, like just battled and battled and battled to the point that they almost managed to pull out that game five on the road when they had almost nothing left in the tank. And, uh, you know, for a heat culture denier, an apostate, as it were, I, you know, I'm, I'm not buying into uh, all of that. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's heat voodoo to me. It's heat devil magic to me more so than it is heat culture. But I got to give them their flowers, man. I, I came away just so impressed by this team over the course of this playoff run to to the point that I was like defending the Celtics after losing to them in the conference final, saying there is no shame in losing to this team. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think as I've noted before too, like as much as I joke around about the whole heat culture thing, like I I agree with you in the sense that there are certain aspects of it or in general, it gets overblown. Like when they succeed, people just like, oh, this heat culture thing. I agree that it can be overblown, but what I will stand by as a subscriber to heat culture is that whatever you want to call it, and as I wrote about in that piece we discussed early in the finals, like there is something about the way they operate that is hard to pinpoint that is slightly unique compared to other teams now like again like you can there's been players that have played for many franchises that have talked about like the way that you have to be conditioned to play for the heat is different like the teams players have said that like training camp for miami is harder in terms of the way they work you cardio wise like all that the, the shape they expect you to be in again the fact that as much as people laugh at it like for whatever reason while every other team would probably transition to him to like a coaching or front office role the heat are like no no udonis has is going to stay in our locker room on like a paid player contract because there is something about his leadership whatever it is that we believe belongs in the locker room and like we see that value and no other team 
would see that. And like, those are the things where whether you correlate that to any type of encore performance or not, I do think there is something there that they do differently, that they identify differently, that they value differently from other teams and franchises that becomes part of the culture. Again, you don't have to agree that like that ends up correlating to on-court performance, but I do think in general there is a a different way that they operate. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I I'm I can see that. I'll say I'll say that. I can see it. Again, I I mean, I give the the players, the coaching staff, the whole organization a ton of credit for what they have accomplished not just this year but over the last 4 years. Like since acquiring Jimmy Butler, uh, I think it's really amazing what they've managed to do and the way that they've managed to do it, right? With all of that defensive flexibility and the kind of unconventional way they run their offense. Like it's, it's inspiring stuff. It really is. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm fine to leave my heat thoughts there. I don't know if you have anything else on that. I just have one more point I want to make before we sign off, but uh, I'll give you the mic for now. If you have anything left. No, my last thought on the heat is just that if they don't make kind of one more of those all in moves, like I'm talking about, like I mentioned that they could, if they were to come back next year with a similar roster, obviously we'd have to wait to see how like the offseason shakes out and how other teams improve or whatever. But in general, if they were to come back with the exact same roster, I would very much expect that they will be in a dogfight just to make the playoffs again. And then would very much give them a shot to get back to the finals if they make the playoffs, regardless of seeding. Like, I, I think we could be looking at a similar situation next year where it's like, Regular season, it's going to be a dogfight. On paper, you look at them and be like, to survive the 82-game grind with this roster, with Jimmy's age, with like all that stuff, it's going to be tough. Like They will probably have to take it right till mid-April just to get in the playoffs. But if they do, again, watch out. Uh, perpetually watch out for the Miami Heat is the unfortunate reality that I have, I have had to confront over the last several years. And like I said, I'm done doubting them, so... Whatever they do, I'm sure it will be brilliant and will uh, be met with smashing success. But uh, yeah, the last point that I want to make before we sign off, and again, this may f- sound a bit straw manny, but I did see enough of this that I just felt the need to comment on it, which is that, look, Nikola Jokic had an all-time playoff run. All-time. He is, without a doubt, the current belt holder for best player in the world, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, look, that's subject to change. I don't think we're in this, like, you know, LeBron in like the mid to late 2000s type of run where it's just unquestioned no matter how the season ends. I think it's a little bit in flux right now where like at the end of last season and for, you know, large portions of this season, I would have said it was Giannis. And, you know, right now I feel like it's Jokic, but like that could change. My point is I've seen a lot of people using this as an opportunity to like retroactively clown the Joel Embiid MVP. And I, I don't like it. Okay. And I'm not just saying that because I, you know, made my completely unofficial MVP pick on this podcast and picked Embiid, but it's just because again, that's not how this works. And unless or until the NBA starts awarding MVP after the playoffs, It is going to be an award that is based on what happened in the regular season. None of us has a crystal ball. You know, we can't look ahead and decide or base our vote on what we think is going to happen in the spring. 
because we don't know. And even if we could, I don't know that it would have been right to like make Jokic MVP because we'd still be basing it off of what happened in the regular season. And from that perspective, I you know feel perfectly fine with having picked Embiid. And I also feel like, you know, if you want to say that you thought Jokic was the best regular season player, that's fine too. I thought it was really close and it was splitting hairs. But to like look back and say, well, this is why, you know, voting MV, you know, voting Embiid for MVP was stupid or like he just whined his way into MVP and it was undeserved. Look, you can feel however you want about Embiid and like <laughs> the way that he went about this. Like, I get it. But to say that he was undeserving, I think is ridiculous. Like it's just, you know, like using hindsight and not actual insight. And you know what? Like it's the same thing that we, and I know a lot of other people were getting really upset about people doing for Jokic by saying, well, he hasn't won anything yet. So like we can't give him a third MVP without knowing whether he's actually going to go and win a championship. And like if Jokic had won his third straight MVP, and like flamed out in the second round, that would have been fine too because he would have been a deserving MVP. So let's not apply that same bullshit standard to Embiid now given what happened to the Sixers and what happened to the Nuggets in the playoffs. Yeah, just like Dirk wasn't the MVP in 07 when the 67-win Mavs lost in the first round despite him being the best player. Uh, just like Giannis wasn't really the MVP when the Bucks flamed out in both of his MVP. You're like, Embiid's not the first guy that has had this happen to him. He won't be the last, and I agree with you. It is ridiculous, and that part of it is unfair. Playoff performance does not change whether a guy deserved an award that is a regular season award. I don't care if he has the worst four-game basketball performance in the history of the sport after being unanimous MVP. If he deserved that unanimous MVP, then give it to him. Like, it's a regular season award. You know, I would have, I said at the time, I would have given it to Jokic for a third straight year, but this was the one out of the three where I was at least okay with Embiid winning it because I thought it was close enough. I still stand by that despite everything I said about Embiid after the Sixers went out again. I still am fine with the fact he won MVP. He was a deserving candidate and winner. Fine. So I agree with you that I don't think him winning MVP should get clowned now. But the one thing where I think we will disagree, I think he personally should absolutely get clowned because <laughs> this is to me it's not about whether he deserved the mvp that's fine he deserved it people shouldn't now try to like retroactively argue it because of how the playoffs went but i do not remember in my lifetime a guy caping for winning the mvp and like even the shots he threw at Jokic, right over the years the, the shots he's thrown at other players in general over the years that's why it's like fine. You don't you don't clown the fact that he won it, but you can absolutely clown him and the things he said and the shots he took at Jokic, especially given how the season and the playoffs ended up playing out. That to me is completely fair game. Like you tried to base it on the like, oh, like taking shot to this guy that doesn't even play defense, played some of the best defense of his career while having one of the greatest playoff runs I can remember mm -hmm. offensively while this team went 16 and four in a championship run. You turn into a pumpkin every year, like by late April and have no idea what the third round of the playoffs tastes like. So like, yeah, keep your MVP award, but you getting clowned is 100% fair game based on what you said about Jokic and the way these playoffs went for both of you. I totally agree with that. But Cash, what does the third round of the playoffs taste like? Can you describe it for me? What's what's the flavor profile? I think as a media member, I can explain it. We've been there as media members. We're all fond. 
but as a player, I wouldn't be able to tell you. A slight metallic taste on the tongue, a little bit of bile in the back of the throat. It's nerve-wracking stuff. I do hope that one day Embiid will get to taste that, and I do firmly believe that his moment is coming. And maybe it won't happen with the Sixers, I don't know, but he has a run like this in him. And it will not look the same because he's a different kind of player than Jokic. I don't know if he'll ever be as good as Jokic, but like I think he is capable of putting together a run like this where he dominates a postseason and looks at least for a time like the best player on planet Earth. Like I think he's capable. He's got to stay healthy. That's going to be the biggest thing. But uh, I do think that is uh, is in him. And uh, I, you know, I know a lot of people dislike Joel Embiid. I, you know, I find some of the things that he's done inside unsavory for sure, but I'm not one of the people who wants to see him fail. Uh, I want to see him succeed and I, and I hope he gets uh, an opportunity to, uh, to have a fully healthy playoff run where he gets to show the breadth of what he's capable of at some point in time. I definitely don't want him to fail. I enjoy many parts of the Joel Embiid experiment. If you remember, I was laughing my ass off when he was doing the DX crotch chop before a playoff game, like coming in with AAA. There's a lot of the Joel Embiid experience that I like that I think would be hilarious that if he were to win and put a run like this together, the things he would say and do and the victory lap he would take, I would find very funny. I do not want him to fail. And I agree with you that obviously talent-wise, very much a possibility and a, you can even argue a likelihood that at one point he will have his moment and a run like this. But his ability to stay healthy like late into the year, the conditioning required to last until mid-June, there is no evidence that he has that yet. And you can talk about other guys and stars who have like failed in the playoffs and eventually had a run like Jokic had. Even when they failed, there was like some indication at some point that they had it in them this time of year, whether it was like a conference finals run before that, a finals run where they came up short, whatever. I don't know if I remember a guy like now this deep into his career who like fails in the same way every year in the playoffs, then all of a sudden having a year when it's like, oh, none of that matters anymore. He's just in this like peak condition come May and June and he does it. We're getting into the weeds now with Embiid. We'll see. It could could happen as soon as next year. We'll see. With Nick Nurse, who we used to hate, is now going to love. Maybe he'll run him out of town by January. Who knows? (laughs) That's all to come next year on Pound the Rock. For now, can I sign us off, Wolfon? Yeah, please. I I do apologize to you and to our listeners for taking eight minutes of what was supposed to be a championship wrap-up pod to talk about Joel Embiid. Uh, But I'll just say again before we sign off, man, Hell of a season, somewhat, uh, you know, burnt out and a little bit relieved to get to the end of it because, uh, you know, this can be a grind for us too. But I enjoyed every second of this, doing this with you, Cash, you know, covering the league this year and a huge hearty thank you to all of our listeners for riding with us through these, uh, these eight long months. And on that note, a special thank you to one of our listeners who's going to get our fan shout out today. And that is Mayuri Salam who lives in Aurora, Ontario, who actually messaged me on Instagram after the episode, I guess that aired on my birthday, that was right before Mother's Day weekend, when we gave them, you know, happy Mother's Day greeting at the end. So she messaged after that to say that she is a mom and thanked us for the Mother's Day greetings, that Pound the Rock was her first NBA podcast that she ever listened to. She's a mother of three boys who are now all in their early 20s and have all played uh, high-level basketball around Ontario. She said she learned to love the game watching her kids play. 
And she's now a devoted, loyal Raptors fan and also Pound the Rock fan. She's grown to love the game in general and now says that most of the podcasts she listened to are basketball related, but we were the first. She also mentioned that she reads both of our work and analysis on the Score app. So, uh, and then she signed it off with Mayuri Salam, Aurora, Ontario, proud mother of 24, 21, and 17-year-old sons. Mayuri, sounds like you got a great group and family over there of a basketball-loving family and a Pound the Rock-loving family. So thank you so much for your note. Uh, It meant a lot. We appreciate it. And we're happy that we, in any way, can be part of your family's and yours love for basketball. So thanks for reaching out. Thanks for supporting us as long as you have. And the usual call out to all of our listeners out there, whether it's your first time or 302nd time listening to Pound the Rock, hit us up and let us know what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, where you're listening from, how long you've been listening. Find us on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo or at Joey underscore double Y-O-U joseph.casharo at thescore.com or joe.wolfon at thescore.com for email. And you can find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. So hit us up and we'll make sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. But until one of those future episodes for Joe Wolfon, for the NBA champion Denver Nuggets, for Heat Culture, for Joel Embiid, I'm Joseph Casharo. Pound the rock.